you're not already in Psalm 130, I hope you'll be there, please, in your Bible, Psalm 130, and we're going to look at a God who is worthy of our hope, and we're going to see the psalmist, by inspiration, prove that fact, that we ought to be putting our hope in God because of who he is. Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent, which means it was often sang by the people of Israel as they were ascending to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. And you can see how it would cause somebody to focus their mind on who God is, about what they're going to do to go and to worship him and help them to get their hearts right before they worship. I'm afraid, though, that the way we often use the word hope can sometimes confuse us when we read about hope in the Bible. And for many of us, I'm sure we're familiar with this, but the way we use the word hope isn't really the way that the Bible talks about hope. We use the word hope kind of like wishing. For example, I'm a pretty big Broncos fan. Lived in Denver for the first 12 or so years of my life. Been to some games, and the Broncos were absolutely destroyed on Thursday night football this past week. And I would say I hope that they get better. I hope that they win next week. I hope that they make some changes. I don't know, fire who they got to fire, do whatever they got to do. And we use hope like that, kind of just throw it around. You know, well, I hope this, I hope that, I hope uh, that next week it might rain less or more or whatever we might want. We kind of use it interchangeable with wish, but in the Bible it's much more deeper, or it is deeper than that. It's more than just a wish. It's more than just kind of this superficial, ah, I hope, I wish that this happens. It's something that's a deep longing, a deep thing that we're expecting. It's something that we have our trust in and we look forward to. It's something that sustains us, something that sustains us in our life. And the psalmist says here that God ought to be that for us. He's our reason for waking up in the morning. He's our motivating factor behind what we do. And he's given us more than enough reason to place that hope, to place that trust in him, to wait on him, to trust that he'll deliver on what he's promised. And we see that here in this psalm in a couple of different ways. Psalm 130, beginning in verses 1 through 2, and we see that God deserves our hope because he's attentive. And when I say deserve, I don't mean he's earned it. I don't mean anything like that. I mean our hope is well-placed in him. In the first place, because he listens, he's attentive. Notice these first two verses. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy or the, the sound of my supplications. And we see there that God is listening to his people even when they cry from the depths. And I think that's a good distinction to make. Sometimes we might be at a point in our life where it seems like God's not listening. It seems like everything's going wrong and we keep praying, but it almost seems like it's falling on deaf ears. But the psalmist tells us, even in the depths of life, I call out to the Lord and he's listening. Notice what John tells us by inspiration in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Speaking to Christians, he says, this is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask him anything according to his will, we have what we've asked of him. John says this is the confidence of Christians. When we approach God the Father through his son Jesus Christ and ask these things according to his will, we have that confidence, that assuredness. And the answer might not be how we expect it. It might not be on our timeline, but God is listening and working in our lives. I love the description of God in Psalm 65, verse 2. 
In fact, it's one of my favorite descriptions of God, if you're allowed to have a list like that. The psalmist there describes God as he who listens to prayer. He says, O O you who listen to prayer, may all flesh to you come. And think about what that description really means. It speaks to part of the character of God himself, that he's listening to his people. That when he's redeemed people for himself, he's plugged into their needs, their wants. He's plugged into what they request of him. And even at rock bottom, God is listening to our requests. He's attentive to our requests for mercy and for help. And it's not just that he's listening from rock bottom. It's that he is willing to help. Notice the psalmist says he screams out or yells out or cries out, please for mercy. He's not just throwing stuff out there. He's actually asking God to do something, to show mercy to him. And sometimes we think, perhaps, that we get ourselves into a mess. We need to be the ones to get ourselves out. But the fact is, God is listening and is eager to help us, even in what we might call rock bottom. It reminds me of Jonah. If you would, turn over to Jonah chapter 2. And look at verses 2 through 7. And the situation that Jonah finds himself in there. And how God responds to him. Jonah 2, chapter 2 through 7. And this is Jonah praying to God from the belly of the fish. You remember that? He's told to go and to preach to... uh, He's he's told to go and to preach to this evil group of people in Nineveh. And instead he tries to go in the opposite direction. He's thrown into the ocean. He's swallowed by a fish. And listen to his prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah saying he's sinking. He's drowning. He doesn't think he's going to make it out. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So in this moment of repentance, where Jonah, it seems he's as deep as he can be, it seems the situation is almost hopeless, weeds, seaweeds wrapped around his head, he's drowning, he's struggling, he repents and he prays to God. And notice this antithesis, if you will. Jonah is at the deep, he's at the root of the mountains, he says, but his prayer makes it all the way into the temple of the Lord. It's as extreme as you can go, as far deep as you can get. That's where Jonah was, as far as high as a prayer can go. That's where the prayer went. And God heard him, and he answered his prayer. And I hope that we can remember, even when we're at rock bottom, if we'll turn to God, and as his people honestly seek him and reach out to him, he is listening, he is attentive, and he is willing to help us. When we are in the depths, we need to cry out to God. Sometimes that's where we try to muster it by our own strength. And that's part of what this psalm is trying to convince Israel to do, to not rely on their own strength, to realize their need for God so that as they go to worship him, it's truly from the heart. 
realizing that without God, they would be hopeless, but with God, they have all the hope in the world. And we need to recognize that we can call out to the God of grace who's going to help us in a time of need. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, if you will. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean we're not going to have any pain in our lives, as I'm sure you know. But it does mean that God is listening, and there's coming a day of deliverance. There's coming a day of rescue. There's coming a day where we won't be in the sinful world anymore. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says this to the Christians. And after you've suffered a little while, so it's not that they won't suffer. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, any grace that's to be found, that's to be found in God, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here you have a group of Christians who were struggling, who were being persecuted, who were suffering. And Peter tells them, look, I can't tell you that your suffering is going to stop immediately. I can't tell you that it's all going to get better after, uh, you know, overnight. But I can tell you this. If you keep your faith in God, he personally will confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And the same is true for us as Christians in the 21st century. As God's people, even at rock bottom, even when the pain seems unbearable, the comfort in knowing that God is listening because that's who he is. He's a God who listens to his people. He's the one who listens to prayer. It's part of his nature. He loves us, and he wants to hear what we have to say. In the next place, we'll see that God, we ought to place our hope in him because he is forgiving. Look back in our text in Psalm 103. Notice verses 3 and 4. See what the psalmist says there. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we notice there in the first place in verse 3 that the Lord is not what we might call an exacting master. And maybe we've met people like that. Maybe we know people like that. Maybe we're friends with people like that. Or we've worked with people like that. Where it seems like any little mistake gets pointed out to you. You ever met anybody like that? And it doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how much effort you put into it. It doesn't matter if you got it 99% correct. That 1% that's off is going to be thrown back to you and pointed out. The Lord's not like that. He's not sitting there trying to mark the iniquities of his people. Now, don't get me wrong. Those who are in sin and stay in sin and never go into Christ, never receive forgiveness, they'll be held accountable for their sin, and they'll be treated accordingly. They'll be judged, and they'll be condemned unless they repent. But for those of us who are his people, the Lord's not marking our iniquities. He's not keeping a record of them. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read that about love, that it keeps no record of wrongs. That God, through his Son, and when we have faith in his Son, obedient faith in his Son, he's more than willing to cast our iniquities to the bottom of the sea, to cast them behind him, to remember them no more. It's as if they don't even exist. It doesn't mean we won't still have consequences in our physical life. It doesn't mean... Our memory of them isn't still there, but in God's ledger, our name is clean. He's not marking iniquities. And notice this, if he did, who could stand? If God really treated us according to every sin, the way we deserved, and there was no grace, there was no mercy, nobody could stand before him. But notice this, with you, 
There is forgiveness. That's part of God's nature. He wants to forgive. And notice this. I think this is interesting. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When we think about fearing God, when we think about revering God, I don't think we often think about his forgiveness as a reason for that. But this is what the psalmist says. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fact that God is willing to forgive us and preserve us and help us ought to in us cause us to revere him, to respect him, to fear him, to realize truly how dependent we are on him. Because the truth is, we all sin. And if God were to keep a record of all of our wrongs without hope of forgiveness, nobody could ever stand in God's presence. Thankfully, however, God is not an unforgiving Lord. He wants to forgive. He wants to not keep a record of our debts. And he made sure that he could view us in that way by sending his son. Notice what the Bible has to say. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. Probably familiar for many of us, but it tells us that now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want, he wants to forgive people of their sins so much that he sent his only son into the world so that he could do it. And now we can stand in the presence of God with nothing separating us and him, because Jesus stands in that gap. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 27, if you would, please. Matthew 18 and verse number 27. And this was our Devo Wednesday night, if you were here. It's the middle of the parable of the unforgiving servant, where this forgiving master in many ways symbolizes God our Father, But notice his response in verse 27. After the servant who had this debt he could never repay gets on his knees and begs for forgiveness. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. It wasn't because he thought he could pay it back. It wasn't because somehow he had earned it. It wasn't because he was going to work it off. It was because the master had pity. The master had compassion. The master wanted to forgive him in his penitence, so he did. And the same is true for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 12. Look at this discussion of this new covenant that we're now under in Christ. And notice one of the blessings that come with it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 12. And this was prophesied beforehand and under the prophet Jeremiah. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ fulfilled in the covenant that, in which we now live, and describing his response to people's sins under this new covenant. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He's not keeping a tally. He's not keeping a mark. He's not holding those things against us. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And what we see is that there's no sin too bad for God to forgive if one is willing to come to him on his terms. And he still offers complete forgiveness. He still offers complete pardon still today. But sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes even if we're forgiven by God, we still struggle to forgive ourselves. John in 1 John speaks to this. The Lord, he says of God that he knows all things and he's stronger than our heart. And even if our heart condemns us, if we're right with him, he doesn't. And sometimes it can be hard to remember that God is not an exacting master. 
that sometimes it's hard to for sorry, it's hard to remember that he saves us out of his own good pleasure. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says to those people seeking to follow him, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God doesn't save people because he feels compelled to. He doesn't save people because he feels like he has to. He doesn't save people because they've earned it. He saves people because he wants to. That's part of who he is. That's part of his very nature. And if we come to him on his terms, we can be sure of this that our sins are as good as gone to him. His son paid the price for them, and now we don't have to deal with the guilt. God loves us, and he wants to forgive us our sins. He wants to forget them. He wants us to be innocent in his eyes. And this is a present reality for those who are in Jesus Christ. This isn't something we can only think about or wish about or hope that might be true for us. If we're a Christian, this is our reality that God looks on us, sees the righteousness of his son, and he doesn't mark our own iniquities. And the next place, we ought to put our hope in God because he is dependable. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 130. Sorry. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. He's dependable. The psalmist says this of God, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. Part of what the psalmist is saying here is we can put our total hope and trust in God. And he says his innermost self, he says his very soul waits for the Lord. That is, he's trusting God to provide him with what he needs. He's dependent on the Lord. And it's not necessarily coming on the psalmist's timeline. He says he has to wait He's got to sit there in the discomfort and in the struggle. But his hope is in God, knowing that God will deliver. And notice the source of this hope. He says, and in his word, I will hope. And we, hopefully, are hoping in God's word today still. And I think that there is a relationship between our, not necessarily our familiarity, but our our love, maybe, Uh, in in God's word, with God's word, and our hope. It's hard to hope in the promises of God when we're unfamiliar with the promises of God. It's hard to hope in the character of God if we're really not sure who he is. And the only way to know who he is, the only way to become familiar with his promises is to go to his word, to study it, to meditate on it, to allow it to penetrate our hearts and change the way we live. And then, truly, we have a reason to hope. And we see a reason almost on every page of the Bible to hope in the God who's revealed it. And we have an eagerness to wait for the Lord because we know he will deliver. Notice the eagerness here in verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And that's kind of a a symbol or a a turn of phrase that may be unfamiliar for us. We don't really have watchmen. There's no, uh, I guess the closest thing would be our firefighters, our policemen who are willing to wake up at all hours of the night to do what needs to be done to help others. But imagine your job is to sit outside of a city the last shift of the night, late at night. Everybody else is asleep. And your job is to look out into the darkness for danger. And if anything comes and threatens the city, it's your job to either ring the alarm and to get everybody's attention, or it's your job to stand between the threat and the people behind the wall. 
How badly would you want to see the sunrise? That's your job, staring into the darkness, waiting for something to happen. And your hope is in when you see the sun crest over that hill. And you know that we made it through the night. And you can go back home and you can see your family. The psalmist says that is how eagerly he waits for the Lord. There's that kind of urgency. There's that kind of dependency. And then when God delivers, when the sun rises, we get to bask in the glory of God delivering on his promises. And the same hope and jubilation that would be in the heart of the watchman can be in our heart when God truly does deliver us. I think sometimes, especially for those of us who are younger, sometimes we're too impatient to wait on the Lord. Maybe we think we're strong enough or we're capable enough to just get the job done ourselves. And we get frustrated when, when we try to get the job done ourselves, we fail. And we forget that we need to depend on God and on his timing and our hope is in him and not ourselves. And our ultimate hope, our source of hope, should be in the word of God. It's steadfast and sure. It proves itself true. It gives us God's promises and reveals his character. Whatever God says he will do, he will do. We need only to trust and to wait. And that's what the psalmist is trying to get Israel behind here in these verses. Notice in the last place that we ought to put our hope in God because he redeems his people. Verses 7 and 8, and see what the psalmist has to say about this. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, or there is mercy, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice the psalmist here is trying to convince others of the goodness of God. He's not just focusing on himself and his own service and worship of God. He's trying to get others involved. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Remember, he already said that his own soul hopes in the Lord, and now he's trying to get others to do it as well. He's telling Israel that their hope in God is not misplaced. Why? For a couple of reasons. In the first place, with the Lord, there is steadfast love, or with the Lord, there is mercy, depending on your translation. But think about that idea of steadfast love and putting your hope, putting your hope in a God whose love for you doesn't run out, putting a hope, putting your hope in a God uh, who's not uh, kind of finicky, and some day he wants to deliver on his promises, and others day, other days he doesn't. No, God is the God of steadfast love. He's the God willing to forgive. And the psalmist tries to get all of Israel to hope in the Lord because he offers a hope that transcends any of life's circumstances. And even this life itself, it extends in the life to come. It's the only thing in the world you can hope in and not just have hope in this life only. You can have hope for eternity. For with him there is steadfast love and with him there is plentiful redemption. And the psalmist says that the Lord will completely redeem those who are his. It's not partial. It's not halfway. It's complete. And that doesn't mean it's not conditional. But it means that when God does something, he truly does deliver on it. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, not some of the sin. God doesn't just deliver us from some of our sins in Christ. It's all of it. There's no condemnation. Notice verse 7. With him is plentiful redemption. It's not just a little bit. It's not just a teaspoon of redemption. It's plentiful. God is going to completely redeem those who put their faith and trust 
in him. And we have the hope of being bought back. That's what that phrase redemption really is trying to get across. We have that hope of being bought back from our own sinful ways. And when the Lord redeems, he truly redeems completely. And he offers that in Christ. If you're in Christ tonight, we have the hope in knowing, we have the hope and the confidence that all of our sins are forgiven. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son continues to cleanse us from all of our iniquities. And even if we stumble while we're in the light, we can confess that sin, turn to God, and he's just and he's faithful to forgive us. But this idea of complete redemption, we read a couple of different times in the New Testament about our lives outside of Christ, about our lives before we were Christians, how we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, how we were slaves to sin, Romans chapter 6 says. How can we be delivered from that? How can we have any hope in light of that reality? There's only one way, the redemption of God. The fact that God is willing, with the blood of his Son, to buy us back from our own sinful lifestyle and to rejuvenate us and to cause us to be born again, to have life and to have life eternal. The goodness of God, the redemption of God, the forgiveness of God, and the steadfast love of God as presented here, ought to cause us to hope in him. There's no other source of this. There's no other place we can go. There's nobody else we can go to to receive redemption, to receive this kind of forgiveness and separation from our sins. When we dwell on what God has done for us and how we are completely forgiven by his mercy and grace through faith in his son, it should cause us to share that with others. When we really start to grasp at how great of a blessing it is to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to have a God worth waiting on, a God that we ought to put our hope in, we ought to seek others to share in that hope. And I want to look at a couple of different verses with you as we close, asking this question. When is the last time that we've shared with somebody else how good God is? Because you can go time and time in the Bible and see how, for many people, this is really the source of them spreading the news about God to others. It's not that they feel like they have to or that they're under some kind of compulsion or that if they don't, there's going to be trouble. Instead, they're so overwhelmed with how good God has been to them that they can't help but share it with other people. Notice Psalm 66 and verse 16. With me, please, if you would. Psalm 66 and verse 16. Psalm 66, 16, again we read of the psalmist calling on other people. Look at what he says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You can almost see the psalmist itching just to tell somebody, Look at what God has done for me. Look at how good he's been. Not only to me, but to you. Look at John chapter 4 and verse 29. And this is toward the end of that narrative of Jesus with the uh, woman at the well. John 4, 29. And remember the woman says that he had told her everything she had ever done. And she's convinced that he truly is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who's going to save his people. John 4, 29. So this is when she goes back to her village after speaking with Jesus. And she says, Come, 
See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You see how overwhelmed she is with what Jesus had done, that she had to share it with somebody else. And then when you read on, look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. All that woman did was because of what God had done for her, wanted to get other people to be a part of it. Look at what God has done for me. Come and see it. He told me all that he ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. But how did that happen? That whole village of Samaritans believing in Jesus, how did that happen? One woman going back and telling them what God had done for her. Look at uh, another place. Look at Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, verses 18 through 20. Mark 5, 18 through 20. And this is the account of the man who has uh, the multitude of demons in him, the legion of demons in him. And nobody can control him. He's out there in the wilderness, and everybody's scared of him. Look at this. This is after Jesus had uh, cast the demons out of him. They came to Jesus, that is the herdsmen of the country, came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Maybe it was the loss of livestock, maybe it was the fact that this man nobody could control, Jesus could help. For whatever reason, they were scared. But look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. He was saying, Jesus, let me be with you. Let me follow you. Verse 19, but he did not permit him. But instead, Jesus said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And the Decapolis is an area, a Gentile area. These aren't Jews. These are Gentiles. But notice Jesus' answer to this man. Jesus says, Lord, I want to come with you. He says, no, you've got something to do here. Go back home. Tell your friends how much the Lord had done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. And that's what he did. And the result was people marveled in Jesus. So our goal, my goal for us tonight as Christians is really twofold. The first is for us to be encouraged in the good news of we serve a God uh, in whom we can hope and be sure in our hope and know that he's good to us and that he loves us and that he's willing to forgive us and redeem us completely. But there's another part of that. I hope that I can, that not me, but God's word will encourage us to go out and to share that with others, to let the goodness of God, the fact that he is a God in whom we can put our hope, cause us to reach out to others, to share that good news with others, to talk to others about how much God has done for us. And they might mock us, they might dismiss us. But that will just be what it is. The least we could do is go to them and try to get them to participate and to experience the same goodness that we've received from the Lord. And when you look at these passages, it's almost as if God's goodness is contagious. It's like when you have it, you can't help but share it with other people and, and hopefully it spreads. 
If you're here tonight and you've yet to recognize the goodness of God, you've yet to put your hope in him, your trust in him, you've yet to lean on him, to come to him on his terms and receive complete forgiveness, complete redemption, to have no condemnation, to be forgiven of all your sins, tonight's the night to do that, to place your faith in him, to repent of your sins, to confess that he is who he said he is, the Son of God, and to be buried with him in baptism, to walk in newness of life, to experience redemption, the forgiveness of sins that Paul tells us is only in Christ Jesus. And the only way to get into Christ Jesus is to be faithfully baptized into him. But for many of us, we're already Christians. I encourage us to dwell on these things, to place our hope in the word of God, to go to God's word often, and to see on its pages the very promises and character of God so that we can have hope, so that we can know he is who he says he is, so that we can feel assured that when we pray, he's there listening and that he will deliver, that we can feel assured that in Christ we are truly forgiven of all of our sins. I encourage us to go to God's word. But more than that, I encourage us to go to our neighbors, to our friends, and just like the man in Mark 5, tell them all that the Lord has done for us and how he has shown mercy on us. If you have a need to come forward to repent, to put Christ on in baptism, let's do that tonight as we sing.